Bobcast. This is Bridget. It's good to be back. Uh, today I have with me Scott Van Leer, director of the Vic. Very excited to have him here. Uh, Scott, you want to do a little introduction of yourself? Who are you? What are you doing? Yes, thanks for having me on. Yeah. I am a Paul Smith College alum, class of 1993. And I went on to have a career as a New York State forest ranger. I spent 25 years in the High Peaks Wilderness. And I had some really great adventures there, mostly in search and rescue, but I have a lot of good stories that way. And then uh, two and a half years ago, I came to be the director here at the Vic. That's so exciting. And so you've been here for two and a half years doing this. Correct. Awesome. Correct. And I had been like a super involved alumni for about eight and a half years. I'd been a trustee of the college briefly as I was approaching retirement age or retirement service time with the Rangers. One of the big things that led me to retirement was the availability to come to the Vic. Because yeah. it was a tough decision to make because being a forest ranger was really great, but it is uh, physically taxing. So <laughs> it's kind of, you know, it's the kind of job you don't want to stay on too long. Yeah, you need so, you, you run that risk of like overstaying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, um, what was it like being a ranger? Like, what was that experience like? And then, like, how did that influence you now as Victor? Well, one thing, the forest ranger job in New York. If um, if anybody listening is not familiar with New York State in the forest preserve, that job is is similar to the National Park Service law enforcement ranger. There's three main components to it. There is what I call stewardship, what is um, law enforcement is part of that as well. Um, technically, you are police officers, but you don't do, um, you may have quite a few tickets, but you don't do a lot of arrests or traditional police work. Then, then search and rescue and fire, they're like the three components. And the amount of those three components you do is very much dependent on where you're a forest ranger. So in the High Peaks Wilderness, I had lots and lots of people and lots and lots of rescues and a lot of searches as well too. So that's about on 600. And Paul Smith College has always produced a high number of forest rangers in New York. Yeah. Uh, some on for the National Park Service uh, and the Forest Service as well, but about traditionally about half the forest rangers in New York are Paul Smith College alum. In fact, in my class 1993, we had five, five Five of my, four of my classmates, five of us total went on to become forest rangers. And think about that, that's a job that there's only 135 items. So there's only 135 rangers statewide and wow. to have one come out of a class here, or five come out of a class here at Paul of Smith's. Is, of that, yeah. Like the whole of New York. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And most of the New York State forest rangers are in the Adirondacks. There's, there's, yeah, that makes sense. There's, there's a decent number in the Catskills, and there's a scattering pretty much throughout the entire state, but it's very lean. In the Adirondacks, you know, that's where... Concentrated. Lots. For good reason. Yeah. Six million acres. Yeah, there's a lot of zone here. Um, yeah. So it was almost natural, like, to be director of Vic here. Like, to it's a good of, fit. Yeah, it fits well. It, it fits well. Um, like I said, the, the biggest reason I left was a, a, a little bit of burnout, which I could have overcome, um, but a lot of it was this opportunity. And it's that connection between the two jobs. I was there, I had a, the last year or two, I had a couple of really massive rescues that went on for a day, day and a half, like le legitimately 24 to 36 hours. 
And at the end of them, I was pretty spent. And early in my career, like I was the, the ranger that was at the top of the mountain first. And then as time went on, you know, then I was in the middle of the pack of the rangers going up. Right, right. So I was like trying to decide, you know, like I said, not overstaying. Yeah. Um, so coming here, yeah, it's a, it's a like kind of a continuation. Um, and I wanted to bring some of those things, some of those skills, some of the, some of the people I know, like bring that to the Vic. Uh, right. the, the Vic really was set up from its, its conception with the APA in 1989 to uh, be more like a nature center. And I'm totally continuing that but I'm trying to bring in some more recreation and recreational skills type courses. For example, like intro to rock climbing, um, intro to winter camping, things like this that I would see people needed to improve their skills on. Like I saw that as a ranger. And so I'm trying to bring some of that here. That's a great education to bring up here. I think that's something we do need. Um, Oh, for anybody who doesn't know, um, the VIC is the Visitor Interpretive Center here on Paul Smith's college campus. Do, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about like the VIC, like mm -hmm. what it is? First of all, the name, the VIC. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I the think VIC. We, yeah, like, I think we kind of... What the heck is the VIC? You got it right. It does stand for Visitor Interpretive, not Information Center. Yes. So that's important. The, VIC, the history of the VIC is really fascinating. Um, much like we have today with overuse of the forest preserve, that was happening to a high degree in the 1980s. So the Adirondack Park Agency decided we want to have a visitor center somewhere in the Adirondacks to capture all these users, these tourists, and give them information about the park. That discussion today is happening again. They're talking about having more of these visitor centers. And most of that focus talks about on having them where people are already going. For example, the High Peaks Wilderness. Makes sense. You're hiking up this mountain, let's have a visitor center at the base. And national parks, they have gates and like uh, structured time and entry points. The Adirondacks doesn't have that. That's like great, but also a difficult component from a management level. Plus size, six million acres and all these interior roads. Interestingly enough, in the 80s, after this exhaustive search, they selected where we are sitting today, Paul Smith's College. Now, what's interesting about it is why did they select it? Because nobody was coming here except for me and students like you having our classes here. The public wasn't coming here. You know, this, uh, there were trails and the ecosystem was here, but uh, the public wasn't utilizing it in any large degree. The reason they did is because the, the ecosystems that they wanted to educate people about, they were very focused on that, were all represented on this 3,000 acres of Paul Smith's college-owned land, except for high alpine vegetation. But that's just a few acres on Marcy and Gothics and a few others. So it's pretty fascinating. They built a visitor center where nobody is, where nobody was going. It's, it kind of boggles my mind that they did that. But I, I get it when you look at the parameters they selected. It worked pretty well for a time. It opened a big fanfare. The governor came to its opening in 1989. The state operated it, the Adirondack Park Agency, with about a dozen employees. Mm -hmm. And over time, uh, things kind of diminished. There were fewer employees. And I'm allowed to say this because I'm a retired state employee. Like, 
the state worker syndrome, like things kind of fell apart and it wasn't getting the attention it needed from the state. And, and that's opinion I received. That was the opinion of a lot of people that worked here, not mine. Like, but right. that was, that was first thing I did coming here was talk to the old, all the old timers that worked here. Right. right? Yeah. So they, they told me all that. And by the time 2010 rolled around, there were, you know, I don't know, six, seven, eight employees. So they were down maybe almost in half. It was the Great Recession, and, and some of the students here are, aren't old enough to remember the Great Recession, but it was terrible. It was terrifying. So they laid people off or moved them to other jobs, and they shuttered this building, the lodge here at the Vic, and they actually gave the building to Paul Smith College, and we have operated since that time. Right. Yeah. It's, it really is an interesting story, like how the Vic came to be and came to be part of PSC campus. Um, and you mentioned you're an alum, you used to be a student here. What was it like uh, when you were a student here versus now as director of the Vic? One thing old timers and especially alumni of any college are horrible about being like overly nostalgic. Oh, in my time, it was 40 below and this and that. We all know that, right? And, and as you get older, like you may say, I'm never going to fall into those traps, but you kind of do. If anybody figures out how to not turn into their father or their mother, let me know. Because, you know, I'm 50 now and it's certainly happening to me. But I will say, yes, times change and things may have been harder in my day or, or whatnot. But one thing I'm very proud of the college is that we certainly produce the same type of students today that we did in 1993, meaning we produce very hardworking students, um, very hardworking alumni. We put out um, bright graduates, obviously, but ones that because their skills came from hands-on learning, that they're able to improvise and adapt quickly in the workplace. So I really like that. So what I tell students today is, is that you, <laughs> coming from Paul Smith College, you have a, a big leg up entering the workforce just because you have a work ethic. And I, I think that's what we have to offer. And it may not be the most attractive sales pitch to try and get a high school kid here, but it's legitimate. Like you're a graduate of Paul Smith College, like they know that you hands-on can do things. I think it's less so like the lack of a work ethic and more so that we have such a different work ethic here than like... Well, you say it better. You like, said it better than yeah, I did. Yeah, like a, like a larger <laughs> university would, you know. Um, I think we're, I mean, we're extremely personal here. Yeah, um, yeah well said. That's good. Yeah, so I think I think our work, our work ethic here is like really, really different. We are a community and we function as such. And that impacts the way that we exist as scientists, as culinary people, as baking majors, you know, and we have such a variety of humans working on a variety of different things all the time. You know, it's, it, you just get this culmination of culture a lot. And I think we see a lot of that here on the Vic as well, especially when you hold events. Lots and lots of people come out here from all different parts of the campus and all different parts of the community. And that's really cool to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I will say that my time at Paul Smith's, as great as the education was, I learned so much from just my classmates. Yeah, um, me too. That, that we all had a similar focus. Not that we all want to be four strangers I hung out with, but those types yeah. of positions. 
And I learned a lot from my classmates and we had shared experiences and those things really helped me in my forest ranger career. Yeah, that definitely carries over into today. I can 100% say mm-hmm. that. Um, we do find, a, like, we are a very big community of students and, you know, everyone knows each other on Paul Smith's campus. Like, that's the whole thing. You know, you will know everyone by the time you're graduating. Uh, and we're just, we can, you can always find, like, moral common ground. We, we have similar philosophies, like, you are very right. Like PSC does attract a very specific demographic of people. Uh, and I think that's part of what makes it such a magical place. Um, okay, moving on. The Vic really operates, or I have it operating, is essentially two separate business models at this point now. And I do look at them that way because it's not a state operation, meaning right. uh, it has to be self-funding. Uh, the college cannot give me just money to run the Vic, so I have to make my own money to run the Vic. So the Vic is self-sustaining financially, and and um, you know hopefully we can actually have a surplus and return some funds back to the rest of college. So it's really important that we operate um, in, our, in our own funding bubble in that way. So I have two main business models. One is kind of the traditional one that I talked about earlier, and that is as a nature center. And it operates that way from April through November. And during that time, a lot of our visitors are focused on three go-to nature trails here. And that is Barnum Brook, which is a, a, about a half mile trail, Boreal Life, which is a one mile trail that has a 1600 foot section of boardwalk through a peatland complex, or a, which is kind of a bog. <laughs> and then a three mile loop through the Heron Marsh, which is uh, marshes dominated by grasses. And that's one of the things that I said why it was selected because this wetland ecosystem, it goes from Barnum Pond before it goes out into into Lower St. Regis, it has these transitions in a relatively short period. So I can, we can show the public these different types of wetlands and explain them. So in the summer, most of my users go on, on those few trails. And in everything here, use of the facility, the lodge, use of the trails is free. Now I do have some paid programming where the visitor, if they want to get more information, they can give some money to get some, some, some expert instruction. And I do offer some, some free programs as well. Um, so that's kind of the summer here. I try to get a diversity of income also by having some facility rentals, like we'll have some weddings here, some concerts. The arts are part of the VIX mission statement. We do have a gallery space where we sell paintings or show Sam paintings. Fest. Sam Fest is Love a good Sam one. Fest. Especially that's in April, so it's a good time. Yeah. Excellent time, especially for the outdoors. Yeah. And then in the in the winter is where it's like a totally different vibe. It's it's much less like a nature center and it's a Nordic center. Yeah. Um, it, all the ski teams, everything. It's like all the skiing here, and and people can wander out on snowshoes as, as well too. And we do programs on snowshoes. But this place is, it really is a phenomenal cross-country ski venue. Last year, this past winter, which was a challenging one in the Northeast, there was a time where we were the only Nordic Center open to the public in all of New York State. 
you know, uh, because Van Ho was, Van, Mount Van Hovenberg was hosting races, so they weren't open to the public. Um, and then for much of the, the rest of the winter, uh, while all these other areas that are really struggling with climate change and not having snow anymore, reliable snow, we still do. Like we're, the Paul Smith College is just in this really amazing little snow belt. We're just kind of to the north and west of the high peaks. So when these fronts, if they're coming in from the west or the southwest um, or the northwest, they they tend to hit us and drop their precipitation um, as they uh, hit the high peaks mountains where elevation goes up several thousand feet. So we have snow, we have cold weather. And while it's you know not as cold as when I was a student here, it is still like reliable. And yeah. we still have 100 days of skiing here. And it still pretty much reliably drops to negative 20s, maybe lower, like every uh, yeah. winter. Mm-hmm. So, it, yeah, it is, a, it is a very reliable winter. I really like the way you put that. Um, I remember coming out here for one of my classes, general ecology, in the winter to do winter tracking. Um, and there's, like, these plots around the Vic for that where you can, like, specifically go and track the animals. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't even, I can't remember how many plots there are. There's a good amount of them and they're all labeled. Um, but it's so cool that we have a place that provides the backdrop for a lot of the hands-on education that we do receive as students here, which is really cool. Uh, yeah, that's where I was going with that. When I talk to potential students here, I, I always say to them, like, hey, if you want to be in a big lecture hall and maybe pretend to listen to a professor or a TA drone on about some subject, you know, like you're in the wrong place. Like your classes here will be um, outdoors often and involve you like doing something and you have to be there. Yeah, and even in lectures I've had, like they're very active. There's active participation and I think that's part of what is so great about PSC is like we really do cater to like all the learning styles, uh, which is great. I think that's the best way to learn is to get, you know, visual, phys- like kinesthetic, verbal, like get a little bit of everything. That's how you're going to grasp stuff the best. You know, you're, you're in wetlands, go out, look at a wetland, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the beautiful Heron Marsh here. Gosh, it's my favorite trail. I it's pretty amazing. Marsh forever, just yeah. alone. Uh, it's it's one of my favorite places probably ever. I love it. It's so beautiful, and the wetlands on the Vic are just incredible. I think they are a really great place for education, um, for people to learn about that. Because I mean, wetlands are now more important than ever, mm-hmm. especially in conservation and restoration contexts. Uh, so having a place where we can direct the public and be like, look at this. This is the beautiful things that people want to build upon and fill in and not have anymore. They're, base, they're ecosystem powerhouses. Yeah, so yeah, I love good. That, yeah, I love that we have such beautiful wetlands here. I just wanted to nerd out about wetlands. <laughs> I love, I well love, done, well done. I love wetlands. Um, how did you end up as a ranger from here? Like, what was... My father was a forest ranger. Okay. So he was a forest ranger from the mid-70s, um, and our careers overlapped for time. So I really grew up wanting to do that. So I was, yeah. compared to most kids, I was pretty clear at what I wanted to do. 
and I only considered one other or two other schools, Wanakeen or ESF. And uh, ESF is in the middle of a big city, so that was out. And Wanakeena, Wanakeena is a good school, but what Paul Smith could offer that Wanakeena wasn't, it was, it was a, a better diversity of programs and uh, professors and a bit larger. Mm-hmm. You, know, you think yeah. of Paul Smith being like super small, but Wanakeena is like really small. Yeah. Like 50, 60. Yeah. Like we're small, but we're not, not like super tiny. Yeah. You're not like one grade in a, in a high school yeah, class. Exactly. Yes. So um, not, not, I'm not knocking Wanakina, but I will say all the best Rangers came from Paul Smith and not Wanakina. So that's, that's just a fact. Um, yeah, we do have really wonderful programs here. And it always bothers me that they stole the name The Ranger School. Yeah. Like they just, they just took that. We it's are, it's we're, wrong. We're Um, we're also like the, the like lab school, like a lot of people end up working in labs from here, like Bionique. Mm-hmm. Bionique right hires here. a lot, yeah. sure. Lots of PSC people there. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people end up in local stuff, which is really cool to see. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people end up doing something that they might not necessarily have seen themselves doing in the end, which I think is part of like the magic of coming here is you discover like what you actually want to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, like I came initially before I decided I was like, I don't want to do forestry. I was initially going to come here for forestry. And then right before I registered, I completely changed that around. And I was like, I want to do something environmental. I did. I'm human health in the environment. Uh, and it was a really great choice. And I've gotten so many different pieces of education. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's part of what's so cool about here. And we have, like, you can do integrated studies and you can do so many different things. I love that we have those opportunities for people. Um, yeah. I was leaning, you know, heavily towards becoming a forest ranger, but I was open to other things. But, right. <laughs> you know, I, I realized pretty quickly I wasn't going to go to grad school and go to college for 10 years. So I wanted to join right. the workforce quickly, right. which I did. I mean, I became a force. That's a civil service job. So you got to take the test and score well and then go through all the physical and academy and stuff. But I did. I mean, I was, I was on, uh, I was a forest stranger like just after my 23rd birthday, Wow. you know, so that's what enabled me to retire relatively, yeah. young, relatively young. I'm 22. So like conceptually for me, I'm like, Oh, wow. That's, that's very impressive. Like, that's a quick... Yeah, at the time, I, I was the youngest forest ranger hire ever at, wow. the time, at the time. But it's been eclipsed since. That's a pretty cool title to hold at the time, then. Yeah, I, didn't yeah. Hold, I don't think I held it very long. But. <laughs> but still, that's really cool to be, like, a youth among the not-so-youths. And my classmates who became forest rangers, you know, they, they didn't score well enough in the first exam, so they couldn't get hired with me. Especially Rob Perjacolo, class of 93, who is still working because he just wasn't good at tests. I'm not really good at tests either, Rob. Don't worry. Rob was the best forest ranger I ever worked with. Aww. That's He's still on the job, though, because, you know, yeah. he didn't get hired till like four or five years after me. Awesome podcast. Wow. I mean, what a trajectory. Uh, you ended up doing this and now you're here working on yeah it's like full circle yeah it is it's kind of a full circle moment yeah Yeah. that's pretty neat 
What's it been like for the two and a half years you've been uh, director of the Vic? Crazy. When I came in, uh, it was COVID, so things yeah. were really shuttered. I was so say, I mean, that was COVID times. So. Yeah. So coming out of that, like it was, it was really blast off. Uh, people were anxious to get back to, to doing things. So mm -hmm. from that aspect, it was an exciting time. And then you know, having to, I was obviously very familiar with Vic, but I was, I had a lot to learn. So I, I, I uh, you know, had to do a lot of that. Um, and trying to grow programs, grow revenue, grow staffing as well too, right. and um, yeah, we're we're still we're still doing that. But I'm really I'm really proud of of what we've done in the two and a half years that I've been here and coming out of COVID. We've really done a lot. We do a lot. There's only three full time employees here. I do have a lot of student workers, and I have yeah. seasonal staff that work in the in the summer that are usually students, but not necessarily. But what we pull off here is, is pretty amazing with just, just three full-time staff. Yeah, that, it is pretty incredible. Um, that, in that way, it's, it, it is like the Forest Ranger job. And it, I don't know what's going to come about every yeah. day. And you, um, you just adapt. You improvise. And, and your, your, your training would allow you to adjust and, and um, you know, accomplish things that you weren't expecting that day, problems that would, would come about. Because as a forest ranger, like, you just, I would plan something for today. Okay, I'm, today I'm going to patrol this. I'm going to hike that. I'm going to paddle this. You'd make that plan. But then the next thing you know, the, the radio would go off and, and you're doing something totally different. Or what happened even more often was, the, you know, the phone would ring in the middle of the night at midnight and would call and say, there's, this person didn't come back from this hike or this person called and said they're hurt on this trail. And then bam, like um, you're, you're going and doing it. Um, and it's not like an event where you can plan just, you know, weeks or months out and man, you just, boom, you get that call. It's a, it's an incident. It's a response. Yeah. And, and just go. And, and, but you know, they weren't all dramatic. I mean, I had a lot of, um, I had some real, <laughs> there were really great times. It was, I, I could I would stay at outposts, camp out, or stay in these cabins like uh, Marcy Dam or Lake Holden or Johns Brook was my, my favorite outpost. Uh, my, my family could sometimes stay in there with me. I had a wife and two kids, and that was fun. And uh, just some memorable and, and funny times, too. I mean, one, uh, that's a question I get. is like, what were, your, what were some of the funny things you saw as a ranger? And I, I have a, a few. The best one, and this made a, a, a lot of press, was we had this group of kids that were from Miami, Florida, and they were high school kids, and they came up to New York City to compete in this academic competition. Like, these are kids that were, like, members of Mensa. They probably all went to Ivy League colleges. Like, these were the brightest of the bright. I don't think any of them are Paul Smiths, and that's not a knock on Paul Smiths, but these kids were super smart, Ivy League type kids. Mm -hmm. Right, so their group leader says, I want to show them the Adirondacks. So he drives them to the Adirondacks and he goes into the, the High Peaks Wilderness from the south. So this is like the Elk Lake side, Newcomb side. So I don't know any of this is happening at the moment. And I get a call the next day because they were staying at a um, bed and breakfast. And they said, you know, this group of seven, eight, they didn't come back. They didn't come back. So I'm all right, it was a brutal night. And this is like in, April or early May, where there's still some snow on the ground at low elevations, but 
um, certainly a lot of top, but it poured all night. So this is a super bad hypothermic night that had just occurred. So I'm like, okay, you know, they, they're fine. You know, I'm sure they're okay. It's a large group, so numbers are important in safety and they're good, but they're going to be pretty darn miserable because they, I got the gist. They had no gear. They had no idea what, they're, what they were doing. So I start hiking in from the south and I have other rangers, including the, the prior mentioned Rob Projacklo coming in from another trail. And as I'm hiking in, bam, here they are coming to me. And they are soaking wet. They are miserable. It's the next day. The weather's actually good now, but they had on all the worst clothing, you know, cotton, the stuff we tell people never to have. And they are so happy to meet me. I, I, I drop my pack and I just start ripping out clothing, jackets and giving them all sorts of stuff. And they're putting everything on. I get food out. And it was like seven guys and, and, and one lady. And I, I always remember that like chivalry is dead because the guys grabbed all the clothing and she had like this like thin space blanket that she could hold her hands over her shoulder and like wrap around her. And all she had on was like, you know, soaking wet sports bra. Like she was miserable as they all were. So they grab all the clothes that I could have and, and they're starting walking out. And then uh, previously mentioned Robert Jackalow shows up from this other trail and we were walking him out. And uh, they're kind of strung out is because there's six or seven. So we're hanging it back and we're talking to the one lady from the group. And you know, we said, there's like, wow, uh, how did you guys manage to, you know, survive last night not like the literal survivor but the figurative and uh because it was so bad she's like yes it it was really bad and um we stayed warm by peeing on each other and my eyes went like so big and I looked at Rob and he looked at me and we're just like did she really just say that and my buddy Rob turned to her and said Golden shower, brilliant. And then I kind of burst out laughing, turned my head to the, to the back so she couldn't see me. And she says, yeah, it really did work and, and keep us warm. We had a really rough night and we went through things that probably none of them, she says, gesturing to the group in front will ever admit to. So that was really astonishing. So we're, we go out. We get the group out, they go on, and I'm immediately, like, we're telling all the other rangers, like, this is the funniest thing. I, I can't believe this happened. Like, she wasn't playing a joke on us. Like, this was legit. They actually peed on each other to stay warm. So we're telling each other, we're, we're laughing, and um, somehow this information leaked out, and pun intended, because a ranger was out at a bar and was telling somebody he shouldn't have, because I kind of kept this, like, just in-house, and, and um, it got to the press. And then we started getting inundated with these, did this really happen? Did this really happen? And the DEC was like, how do we handle this? And it got to the point they had so many requests that the DEC had to put a statement out that said, urinating on your companion as a method to overcome hypothermia or cold challenge is not a um, reliable technique. Of all of the ways that story could have ended, I was not expecting that, like at all. I let him keep my clothing after uh, I didn't. I didn't take it back. Yeah, <laughs> that was a good decision. The chats, like so biz- it's so bizarre. 
and this was towards the end of my career. So this was when yeah. there were like chats and uh, the internet, you know, because when I was a student here, yeah. there was no internet. But so this started getting like a lot of comments, like, and, and then people are saying, well, you know, you've actually urinated in your Nalgene and then held that close to you. That would be near 98 degrees for a while. But actually just, you know, even just hot water, just urinating on you, it's still going to evaporate and cause you to cool, which is true. Right. Like, it's not a legit right. technique. Another one was, uh, and this, this was, uh, I was not on this incident, but another ranger um, had a call, and actually it was Rob Jackalow. This is his story, but he's not here to tell it. He got a call to go in to help some people that had called on her cell phone and said, my cell phone's going to die. I'm on such and such a trail, and I don't have any other light to get out. It's getting dark. Uh, please come help me. So he does, and their cell phone goes dead because he tries them as he's, like, going into the woods. And he's hiking into them. They're on a trail. And as he's approaching approaching them, he, he just starts smelling something. He starts smelling, like, rubber burning, like this plastic burning. And then he goes around the corner of the trail, and he finds these two women, and they're holding a stick. And on this end of the stick is like this little tiny flame and this melted plastic. And as he comes around the corner, and he's got a headlamp on, so suddenly it shines on them. And then they're like, ah! They scream. And he's just like, oh my God, I can't believe what I just saw. He sees two women only in bra and panties. That's all they have on, holding a stick. They had burned their clothing as a light source. Oh. They tried to make a torch. They burned their sneakers because they had no so they tried, back. So they tried to make a torch out of their clothes. Out of their clothes. They burned their clothing for light. So they must have watched Indiana Jones a lot yeah, and saw and how like, cool that works. Yeah. And they, they only made it like a couple hundred feet. Like they burned through pants, shirts, sneakers. Yeah. They were barefoot. No backpacks, nothing. They had like cigarettes and a do lighter. People, do people just like hike here? Well, these are extreme with, examples. With, like, yeah. <laughs> but no, they're. I've heard of like people like climbing mountains with like flip flops and getting oh, yeah, stuff, yeah. you know, like things like that, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, you like see that. that all the time. I don't know if I've ever heard of people burning their only clothes for a torch. Yeah, those were the. Eyes will adjust eventually. No, I mean, you're going to be stuck. If it's dark, you yeah, won't be able to walk like, out. But like, the one, they knew he was coming in. Right. Um, but they were trying to improvise. Gosh. But, you know, Yikes. I, I mean, I've had other people make, like, really silly decisions, you know. And some of them, yeah. um, you know, some some people lost their lives because of lack of skills and, like, really poor judgment and poor decisions. Right. I remember one guy that we found and... Um, he had a lighter and he had stuff, but he didn't make a campfire because he was afraid of causing a wildfire, you know, because now like wildfires are like in the news a lot because they're happening more and more. But we're like, no, <laughs> you're yeah. not going to cause uh, yeah, you're not a crown fire, fire and burn out. Like yeah. you make a fire. If you, this is the Northeast. Like we don't have that kind of fire um, yeah. behavior generally. Right, and that kind of thing could happen here someday, but right. we're not in a fire environment the way that you are in places like that. Yes. Um, and then I saw people that, like, their inability, I saw people that tried to make fires 
because it was their last chance to be warm. Right. You know, and, uh, you know, they died because they couldn't make fire. One of them, I'll never forget, like, she was in a place where it was really easy to make a fire. She was up on McNaughton, mm -hmm. and there was all these branches of spruce that were nice and dead and had real finite material. And she, um, she tried to build a fire. She had stuff, and she even had some fire starter, and this was in winter. And she was burning everything she had. Like, she was trying to burn some plastic stuff to get it going. And she had a fire going for a time, but it just kind of went out. And when I mm -hmm. found the spot where she made a fire, it was just kind of this, you could tell it never got heat. Just this, yeah. this little melted mass. And from there, I said, okay, I'm going to find her pretty quick. And then, because I'd been tracking her for the whole day. And then all of a sudden, I see her tracks, they go up. And I'm following them. And her tracks go down the mountain. And then they go back up. And they go down. I'm like, okay, she's right here somewhere. And sure enough, like 10, it's hard to say time-wise how many, how far from the time she made that fire because she was, uh, her, her direction of travel had no rhyme or reason at that point. She had lost sense. Yeah. And then sure enough, there was her body. She was just falling over backwards. She was basically just walking. And then uh, her body temperature got low enough and she just fell backwards. Her headlamp was still on. I always remember her headlamp shining up. And there she was dead, uh, you know, died of hypothermia because she couldn't make a fire because she didn't have the skills. And it was an easy place to make a fire. Yeah. You know, I had others where they died because they couldn't make a fire, but they were in really difficult yeah. places and to make a fire. like the importance of that education. Mm -hmm. um, it's to teach people how to survive in the wilderness in case they end up in those situations because it's really scary. And if you don't know how to keep yourself alive, especially in a winter situation, like you might not make it and that's terrifying. So having that education is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is primarily is listened to by students. So I, yes. I, I really like, um, so September 14th, the Vic club, there is a student club that's called yes. the Vic club. Good mention. And, uh, they are hosting a student night at the Vic on the 14th and it'll start at five 30. And if you want to get away from cafeteria food for the night, there'll be food trucks, food trailers behind the lodge here. There'll be a campfire going. There will be uh, lawn games uh, and it'll be multiple food trucks. I'll be running the grilling station so I can cook you veggie burgers, hamburgers, maybe some steaks. And there's also a concert, um, Ursa and the Major Keys. If I butchered that, I good, apologize good to Anna, the president of the, of the club. But they'll be playing music. It's a, a rock band, too, it's, so it's not a band that an old guy like me picked out. It, it was a student-selected band. And they'll be playing in the amphitheater right behind the lodge, or if it's rain, they'll be in the theater. Yeah. But it should be a fun event, and you can just come here and get away from, uh, you know, a night at the cafeteria. Yeah. Come to the Vic, hang out. That sounds super fun. I'll probably drag my roommates to come with me. Good. Yeah. The food will go till 5.30 or yeah. to 7, so. probably. Yeah. Cool. All right. And just bring your student ID. Just prove you're a student, and we'll, we'll uh, feed you. And bring your Nalgene bottle, because this is a green event. There's not going to be cans of soda and things like that, but we'll have water and iced tea out. So bring your Nalgene. We're, uh, we're a green, green school. Yeah, we are very green. I mean, one of our colors. Well, thank you, Scott, so much for talking pleasure. to me. It's been great having you on the podcast. All right, bye, everybody. See you next time.